You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is the third installment of a four-part mini-series on well-being. In the first installment, I was joined by Jesse, Dr. Divya Giotti, an ethnographer, and Dr. Aj Advaryu, an economist, to debate how should worker well-being be defined and measured. In the second installment, we shifted the conversation to the factory level. When it comes to well-being on the production floor, factory management have an important role to play. So what drives the behavior of factory management? What are their incentives? To tackle these questions, I re-released a segment of one of our very first episodes, episode six, when Jesse, my co-founder, and I talked to Kim, yes, another Kim. Kim talked to us about her time working as quality production lead for a buying office in Cambodia. When asked about the hardest part of her job, she talked about how uncomfortable she was with the way that factory management treated people working on the production floor. We get into why she thinks factory management behaved the way that they did, what their incentives were, and what she could or couldn't do to change it within her capacity as part of a buying office. In this episode, I want to shift the attention to subcontracting. It might sound strange to include an episode on subcontracting in a mini-series about well-being, and to be honest, it's a topic that I intuitively felt should be included, but I'm still working on articulating and explaining that intuition. I guess it has something to do with visibility, human rights abuses, long hours, sweatshop conditions, and all the things associated with a lack of well-being tend to be defined, I think, by sustainability advocates as a visibility problem. So what I mean by that is whenever there's a scandal in a fashion supply chain, brands will say, oh, we audit our factories to make sure that they're treating people decently, but we didn't know our products were being produced in that factory. Our factories farmed the order out to someone else without telling us, and that made it really hard for us to verify what was happening. We saw this kind of language with Rana Plaza. More recently, we saw it with Boohoo. Both cases where the factory hired by the brand to make the products decided to pass some or part of the production on to another factory without disclosing it to the brand, which effectively is what we mean when we say subcontracting. Research from Human Rights Watch has also shown that the people working in subcontracted facilities often fare worse than people working in larger, more visible garment factories. So conventional logic usually goes like this. Better oversight and regulation leads to better outcomes for people. In other words, more visibility equals more well-being. And this is the assumption that I want to fundamentally, not challenge, but, but call into question today in this episode. Let me continue with conventional logic for a minute. So usually the thinking is, as long as suppliers are transparent about to whom they are subcontracting, systems of oversight can be put in place. Auditors can verify whether the supplier on record is doing the requisite due diligence on its subcontractors and human rights outcomes will be better. And side note, the next episode in this mini-series will bring together two factories, one brand, and one former social compliance audit to talk about audits. Okay, pause. Someone recently said to me, it's important to acknowledge who's defining the problem. So to whom are subcontractors invisible? We can't define well-being as a visibility problem if we don't first talk about to whom subcontractors are invisible. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the factories hiring subcontractors certainly know who their subcontractors are and that subcontractors are primarily invisible to the brands and maybe also to the activists and the general public in the quote-unquote West. So what? Well, it's worth defining what subcontracting is, and I've already hinted at this, but colloquially, it's a term used exclusively to describe business arrangements between suppliers. For example, let's say a brand contracts Factory A to produce something. When Factory A hires Factory B for all or part of the production, it's called subcontracting. But isn't a brand hiring a supplier to make goods on their behalf also a form of subcontracting? Isn't subcontracting a precondition to the very notion of supply chains? Would supply chains even be a thing in the absence of subcontracting? So what if instead of visibility, we define the problem differently? What if we started with the question, why aren't brands doing their own production? People are usually quick to point out the cheaper cost of labor somewhere else. And while labor costs are certainly part of the story, I think it's incomplete. More often than not, it's also about a brand's need to minimize their financial risks. The truth is, manufacturing is super risky. Making clothes requires lots of upfront investments in people and materials to make products which may or may not sell. Meanwhile, those people need secure jobs and decent paychecks. That means that whoever is doing the production has a pretty hefty fixed payroll payment at the end of each month. And when there's no crystal ball to perfectly predict how much consumers will buy, a hefty fixed payroll payment is daunting. But it's precisely this uncertainty, combined with an unequal distribution of financial risk, that leads to workers being squeezed. Many brands coped with this uncertainty by moving production offshore. The people making their products are no longer on their payroll. And those manufacturers, in turn, pass the risk on too, through things like subcontracting, until eventually the risk lands with the most vulnerable. For this episode, I'm going to play a couple of clips from previous episodes. The first clip is from our season four opener during which Jessie talks about her encounter with subcontracting when she was working for a French brand as a merchandiser in China. The second one is a clip from episode 18. Jessie interviewed a subcontractor in Phnom Penh. Because the conversation was in Chinese, she summarized some highlights for us. Here's what I want you to consider as you listen to these clips. Is visibility really a sensible way of approaching well-being in fashion supply chains? My view, lack of visibility is a problem for brands. It poses reputational risks. But is visibility really the root cause of operator woes on the production floor? I, I'm not sure. I don't think so. I'm, I'm not sure what the alternative is, but somehow acknowledging how and why and by whom the problem has been defined seems like an important first step. This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Okay, so without further ado, here's the first clip. And again, it's from the season four opener. To start with, I had some difficulties when creating contents for manufactured podcast. 
I don't think it's just me having those difficulties. I believe the difficulties are widely shared by many suppliers and sustainability advocates from production countries. To explain this, I will tell you a story of mine. Before 2017, I spent most of my time living and working in China. I had various jobs in the different fields of the garment industry. I worked as a CEO assistant in a third-party inspection company, whose clients are fashion brands. I shared part of this experience in episode one. I also worked as merchandising manager for a group of French brands. Part of this experience I shared in episode two. That was around 2008, I think, when I worked as merchandising manager for brands. The designers and the buyers were located in France. The merchandising team were in China, but we all belonged to the same company. So one day, as planned, we visited a garment factory in Zhejiang Province to have a regular check on their production. When we walked into the village, I noticed some women sitting in front of a house, having sort of shirts on their laps, and they were hand stitching some beads to the shirts. They were around fifty to sixty years old, chatting and smiling while they were hand stitching. Our supplier noticed my interest. He explained to me that another factory outsourced the hand stitch work to those women, and for him, outsourcing in this case is totally reasonable and acceptable. I was surprised by his frankness and the trust he gave to us, knowing outsourcing or subcontracting was and still is clearly mentioned in the brand's code of conduct as forbidden. To understand his view that. Outsourcing in this case is reasonable and acceptable. We need to start from fashion design. The artwork of beads and sequins decides how they are organized and stitched to a close. Sometimes the stitch can be done by machines. Sometimes it can only be done by hand stitch. The sewing machine operators in a garment factory don't like hand stitch work. It takes longer time. Reduces the number of pieces they can finish per day and eventually reduces their income. They would complain to the supervisors if forcing the work on them. The factory management also don't want to put the hand stitch work into the production line because it takes longer time, slows down the whole process, and eventually increases operational cost. Especially if those orders are sort of experimental, means they are not regular orders placed regularly, and hand stitch requires skills. Even in a garment factory, not everyone is qualified for sewing. If they are, they would be sewing machine operators already. So subcontracting the hand stitch work to someone out of the factory or to another small workshop becomes a good option to relax both workers and the management. Workers would feel their income secured. The management have less concerns of the operational cost. The villagers are happy to take the hand stitch work to make some extra money without traveling a few kilometers or thousands of kilometers away. Zhejiang Province is on the southeast coast of China. Southeast coast is the most developed area of China. The villagers are in a much more relaxed situation comparing to villagers in some other provinces. I mean, no one would take the hand stitch work if the price is too low. The villagers have no reason to force themselves, and the factory management have no leverage to do so. 
On the contrary, they have motivations to give fair prices to strengthen the connection between factories and the community, or to increase their social capital in the local community. I was excited when the supplier shared his view. He helped me to see elements I've never noticed before, and helped me to see how those elements work together to impact the decisions factory management would make. However, outsourcing is not allowed in the code of conduct. If the story was about our orders and our supplier, could I have convinced our buyers that outsourcing in this case was reasonable? No, I don't think so. Even I can rebuild the whole context like what I did just now. I would fail to prove the value can fit to our code of conduct. A brand's code of conduct are detailed standards to which it holds its suppliers accountable. It's top-down. It's a standard to all its suppliers. Putting my story in another province of China, or in the same province but another village, we could have bigger risks of quality defects or workers' rights abuse. I can prove the value of the story, but I can't. Make the value fit in the framework of a top-down standardized code of conduct. Talking about the story, for me, it shows workers are not that passive. They know what they want. In their limited resources, they express their opinions. It shows sometimes the factory management and the workers share the same interest. It shows the social fabric in a specific location have a great power to regulate suppliers' practice. These local knowledges can be very useful for brands to manage the risks in purchasing practice in terms of quality and social responsibility. Especially knowing brands are often in one country and production happens in another country, but in reality, those local knowledges often remain unknown. It's understandable. If a local team needs to justify and back up what they say every time, and to prove the value can be fit in a top-down solution, the burden of proof can quickly kill the motivation and mute their voices. I too share this burden of proof, especially when I try to challenge the viewpoints from some established narratives. For instance, workers' rights. Many posts, articles, slogans, and descriptions painted workers as a sort of passive stakeholder waiting to be empowered, and to be told what's good for them. Yes, workers have very limited resources, but they are not passive. They use what they have to fight for what they can get. Workers know what they want. They also have their own judgment of good factories and bad factories. The mistake is to picture workers as a single-fisted stakeholder. They are as complicated as suppliers and brands. I learned all this from my experiences of working in the garment industry. And it's funny that us, people from production countries, need to prove our experiences are reliable knowledges in terms of workers' rights and environmental issues. It's never the other way around for some established narratives. What is count as knowledge? Kim asked the question. Individual experience is knowledge. This is her answer. I totally agree, but the burden of proof falls on me and on Kim too. And it's not an imagined burden. Don't ask me to prove it's not imagined. Asking me to prove it just shows the power is asymmetrical in the system.
today. I live in Cambodia. When I look around, I see so many production countries in the garment industry: China, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Bangladesh, India. This is just a part of Asia. Thinking about Africa, thinking about South America, the list of production countries can be so long. We have so many garment factories in so many production countries. Their know-how is valuable and reliable knowledge to deal with the sustainability challenges we have today. I hope my episode today can bring your interest and attention to develop access to local experiences, and develop attention to recognize and appreciate the value of local knowledge, see the value and promote it. It will greatly enrich the solutions to the challenges we face today. And now I'm going to play the second clip, which again is from episode 18, when Jesse talked to Mr. Lin, a subcontractor in Phnom Penh. So, Jesse, tell us about how you met Mr. Lin, how he ended up in Phnom Penh, and what kind of subcontracting he does. For a while, I wanted to interview Chinese garment suppliers, but in addition to some of the barriers we've already addressed. Many of the Chinese suppliers I know don't see the value of their work. They said, "Who will be interested? There is nothing to say. Just the、uh, usual old stuff and so on." So one day I I met a Chinese journalist. He lives in Samrep for a few years. I told him what I'm looking for, and he gave me three contacts of Chinese garment suppliers living and running business in Phnom Penh.、Um, after hearing the ideas, two. Suppliers turned down the invitation. One agreed to have an interview, but preferred to do it only by voice instead of face to face talking and recording. So that's how I met Mr. Lin and interviewed him over a phone call. He didn't tell me why he agreed to have interview, but I made、uh, a guess. So it's probably he's invisible for the end clients. End clients here means the brands who place orders to his customers. He's a subcontractor, and subcontractors are usually in the shadows. They are not on anyone's suppliers list. Telling a story like what we are doing now has very little chances to make him be recognized. In another word, I think he feels safer. The other reason I think is we didn't plan to use his story to go against anyone or point at anyone. The purpose is to bring more voices to the stage. The purpose of this interview makes Mr. Lin feel interested. He is willing to let more people to have an idea of subcontractors in garment business. And the last reason, somehow during the interview, I sensed that Mr. Lin see his business in a very different way from brands and sustainability advocates. For instance, he thinks he is helping bigger factories. What I mean is. He see himself as helping bigger factories. That his business is necessary existence for the whole supply network. He didn't say it clearly, but from the way he talks about it, I sensed that he thinks his business is helping brands to get cheaper products and helping brand suppliers to cope with the demand without losing too much margin. So talk about Mr. Lin. He's a、um, mainland Chinese. 
around 35 years old. He came to live in Phnom Penh nearly 10 years ago at the invitation of his relative, who who was doing garment business. I asked Mr. Ling what made him decide to move to Phnom Penh. He said he was doing a small business in the south of China at that time. The cost and the life expenses in China increased a lot comparing with before. Though his business was profitable, he didn't manage to have much money left. And his relative told him, "Phnom Penh is much cheaper than China in terms of expenses. His margin would be much bigger if he ran business in Phnom Penh." That's how he moved to Phnom Penh and start his garment factory. His work in China was not related to garment at all, right? No, it's not.、Uh, it's not about garment. It's something else. But he didn't tell me the details. So he just started the garment factory when he moved to Phnom Penh. I think because of his relative is already in the garment business. So Mr. Lin's factory is making knitting wear, mostly sweaters for men and women. His clients are mostly bigger factories. Some are in China, some are in Phnom Penh. When those bigger factories receive orders from their clients, sometimes they will outsource the production to Mr. Lin. In this case, the big factory will buy and send raw materials to Mr. Lin. Mr. Lin's factory takes care of the production from knitting to packing. The goods will be packed in a ready-to-sell status and sent to the bigger factories, then to be exported and shipped under the name of those bigger factories. The end clients are usually come from Europe and USA. Mr. Lin's factory has three production lines. When it is fully booked, he has over one hundred people working in the factory. So, with this context in mind, Jesse,、um, where does Mr. Lin see his business going in the future? When looking into the future, Mr. Lin has no plan to grow his business bigger from being a subcontractor、uh, to become a supplier for brands. And I was very surprised, as I I always assume subcontractors want to become visible. Subcontractors want to become brand suppliers. As I assume,、um, if you if you are if you are on the list of if you are on a supplier list of a brand, then your payment is more secured.、Uh, everything is more secured. Where when you are invisible, your payment or the payment terms or the amount of money you can get or the the contract details are not secured. So that was my assumption, but Mr. Ming Ling told me it's not true. He sees the whole thing very practically. He said, "To supply brands, I needed to buy more machines, renting a bigger space, and hire more people with regular contract to put up with the requirements and the demands from brands. If the orders are not regular in terms of quantity and style, I'm hooked. I'm not flexible anymore. Today, I'm very flexible. I can deal with bigger orders. I can also cope with smaller orders." Factories always need subcontractors, and my business would always running as long as my prices are cheap for the bigger factories. However, like many other Chinese business owners I know, Mr. Lin is also considering to develop another business to balance or compensate the financial risks from、uh, garment production. You would never imagine what he plans to do. He plans to do beekeeping and to produce honey. Uh, besides his、uh, personal interest into bees, he believes honey business has a faster circulation of cash comparing with making garment, and that makes me worried. If subcontractors feel tension on their cash flow, 
I can only assume the suppliers of brands are at the edge. In fact, it brought me back to the time when I was a merchandising manager working for brands in China. Quite a few garment suppliers told me they only made a few cents per piece from the from our orders. They hung on the hope of weighty refund from the government and the hope that we might place a bigger quantity to them if they remain cooperative. In another private conversation, one supplier told me they have to outsource the production to a subcontractor, otherwise they can't make enough to run the business. From this point, you can see subcontractors will always stay. They are needed in terms to keep the game running. Who is the last one to pay the cost and who is accountable for that? Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. 